As an outsider looking into another culture, it is with your own lens. The Pintabi Nine were a family who lived their lives as hunter-gatherers. They lived off the land. They were deemed by the public as the Lost Tribe when they were discovered in the Gibson Desert in 1984. What eventuated was the harsh reality of being thrust into the media and literally into a different world, both in a physical and cultural sense. Tonight, NG Media presents Pintabi Nine. Good evening. Officials from the Department of Aboriginal Affairs are in Alice Springs tonight after news a primitive family of Aboriginals has been discovered near the Northern Territory West Australian border. Almost 200 years after European settlement in Australia, a family of Aborigines, known as the Pintipi Nine, were discovered by relatives living a traditional nomadic life. Here we're listening to the audio from a television news bulletin that aired on Channel 10 on the 24th of October, 1984. But it was a statement from Aboriginal Affairs Minister Clyde Holding which confirmed the discovery of two men, two boys, three women and two girls had taken place in the remote western desert. The family belongs to the Pintabi tribe and 25 years ago most other tribal members were gathered up and resettled at Kintor, 400 kilometres west of Alice Springs. But somehow this small group of desert dwellers was overlooked. ABC's news program, PM, spoke directly to the Minister of Aboriginal Affairs at the time, Clyde Holding. It, there was no possibility then that these people, at least the older people of the group, came into contact with Europeans 20 or 30 year, years ago when the roundups were occurring. No, that question has been put and the answer that was received was that they had never had any contact with or seen or spoken to a white person. They did not want these people disturbed by the media or by visitors. They were certainly regarding it as a, a first contact. Yet, the next day, the Herald newspaper ran a cover story with exclusive splashed across the top of the page. The headline reading, We Find the Lost Tribe. Although Mr Holding vowed to protect the family's privacy, he gave the full story to a Melbourne tabloid. The following morning, the ABC's Peter Cotton questioned Mr Holding on the ABC News program AM. Well, it seems contradictory to say that uh, on the one hand you want to protect uh, people from an inquisitive world and then uh, to broadcast their existence uh, to that world. As it became clear that the story was out, I felt that the proper course was to inform the media. The Herald newspaper report in particular upset the Pintipi Nine. They were embarrassed and felt shame that people thought they were silly enough to have become lost. They hadn't considered themselves lost. They considered themselves disconnected from their relatives. When the family learned of the report, the Kiwikara community decided to close communication with the rest of the world. And they placed barricades on the roads and the airstrip, effectively giving the family a chance to adjust to their new life. This extraordinary story takes us deep into the heart of the Gibson Desert, a vast, red, dry region of sandhills and desert grass 
that stretches across hundreds of kilometres in Western Australia. The Pintapi Nine consists of two women and their four sons and three daughters, whose ages at the time ranged from 12 to 25. 2014 marks the 30th anniversary of the Pintapi Nine's reunion with their extended family and their consequential discovery of the modern world. This is the real story of the Pintapi Nine. The family's leader, Wallampiri, is thought to be in his early 50s now. He sits, shaded by one of very few trees, on the edge of Lake Mackay. He has in his hand a photo taken in 1984. It's the same photo that appeared on the front of the Melbourne Herald 30 years earlier. That's me. My younger brother, Walala. My older brother, Thomas. Yilti. Takaria. Yukulti. The two old ladies, Papalia and Nanu, they are gone now. That's my family. We are the pint to be nine. They survive by hunting goanna, kangaroo, wild turkey, wildcat, and eating dried seeds, which they would make into a damper called mungiba. The country where this story is told is their country. Their connection to the land, both spiritually and physically, is still very much part of who they are today. <laughs> I'm Yukulji. Lake Mackay is my country, my home, my dreamtime stories, my birthplace. This is my place, my country. I grew up around Lake Mackay. This is where I was born. Charlie McMahon was the community development officer and the only whitefella living in Kiwikara at the time. He kept a diary and recorded the events that unfolded in October of 84. You'll hear Charlie referred to as Marawuk, a name the Pintipi gave him, meaning hook for arm, as Charlie wears a hook on his right arm. Charlie's journal entries begin when the Pintipi man, Pinna Pinna, and his son Matthew 
venture to set up an outstation at a place named Winbargo, 45 kilometres out of Kiwikara. This was when the first sighting of the Pintapi 9 took place. OK, I'm Charlie McMahon, alias Murrahawk Japanati, born 19th of June 1951. Ah, that was uh, very busy, very hectic. Seven days a week, just didn't have stopped. It was exciting, though. The people were really happy to be back in their country. It was a lovely time, really. But people had come out before it was ready. You know, it always happens like that. People were too excited to be back in their own place. So before there was a lot of services there, there was quite a crowd there. There was probably 80, 60 or 80 people out there. And so I happened to write these notes down at the time because I probably thought people might want to know about this someday. And, and I know how quickly, from talking to reporters, how they can get things wrong, even when you tell them it's straight from your mouth. But anyway, this is what I wrote down. So Saturday, October 13th. Pinna Pinna and many others come to my camp late at night, very excited. They relate the story of meeting two naked men, one middle-aged and very tall, the other older, at Wimpataku. They said one of the men, the tall one, came towards him at the hand pump, laying his spears on the ground as he approached and asked Pinna Pinna for water. Pinapina worked the lever to fill up a billy can. Then his son Matthew fired a shotgun blast into the air, I found out later. There have been a handful of articles written about the family, but only now do they feel ready to share their version of events together as a family. <laughs> My name is Walam Perry. We were headed to Wimbako from Jilaru. We had just speared a kangaroo. We could smell the shit of other humans in the air, and we saw smoke in the distance, and we knew there must have been people camping close by. We moved closer and stood on a rock and could see people camping down below. So I began to move even closer to their camp. I saw a tree. I saw a hand pump. I ran towards where they were standing. Then I snuck over closer. I coughed. <coughs> the people heard me. They looked scared. They became frantic, running back and forth. The old man and the kid started running around. This is my grandfather's land, I said to them. So he started filling the billy can with water for us. The sound of the water pump was scary. When he did, together, my brother and I thought, ah, oh, we won't spare him. They were scared. They were really scared of us. Scared out of their wits. 
Pinna Pinna and his son were startled by the two naked wild men with spears. They thought they were Kadaicha, or evil spirits. For Wallumpiri and Thomas, this was the first time they had seen or heard anything like what was happening. Running water, people wearing clothes, and a motor car. <laughs> He handed me the billy can and I drank the water. When I was drinking the water, Thomas, my brother, warned me that it might be dangerous, so I put it down. That was when the man shot the fire stick. The first reporting had him shooting at the naked men. Both men took off in fright, running, and Pinapina and his sons raced the 45 kilometres back to Kiwikura in Pinabina's car with one flat tyre. We got up. I ran west, Thomas ran east, but both headed north towards Lake Mackay. That's where our family was. As we were running away, I turned round. I could see the old man jump in his car and do a burnout because one of the wheels was only a rim. We could hear the sound of the car low into the distance. We heard a second shot and we started going fast. We kept going north and north and north and we could still hear the hum of the car. Later, we saw smoke from the fire and we knew we were being followed. Pinapina and Matthew drove back to Kiwikura as fast as they could, with only three tyres. When they reached the community, the news of the two men created a lot of excitement and everybody was speculating over who the men could possibly be. Everyone this evening is very excited and shocked. I was considering that the general community opinion that the two men are Kadaicha might be true. Pinapina is considering the idea that the two men are relatives he thought were dead. Some say one of the men is Joseph Japojari's brother. A decision to go out on Monday to find them is made. Meanwhile, back at Lake Mackay, Wallumpiri's sister, Takaria, is sitting with her family, waiting for her two brothers to return from their hunting trip. My brother returned and told us there were men at Winbargo. I've seen men at Winbargo with a motor car, he said. Wallumpiri and Thomas told us to get up and keep going. Will Nolan. Japanati, Freddie West Jackamara, Andrew Japananga, Billy Ward, Joseph Jarrah Japaljari, Willie Bennett, and Ray James 
all take off to follow the tracks that go north from Wimparaku. One of the youngest members of the search party, Joseph Jabaljari, still lives in Kiwikara today. Here's how he remembers that day. From Winbarga, I started to track him down. At Winbarga, the others said to me, we don't know who these footprints are. Well, I do. They're my little brothers, I said. And that's when I started tracking him, all the way through. I climbed up the sandhills and had a sneaky look. I was tracking their footprints, and they're inside the Spinifex rings. Joseph recognises the vague outline of the footprints in the crushed Spinifex. He thinks the prints are his skin brothers, Wallampiri, because he remembers the shape of his foot from when they were children. I went up to Sandhill to see if they were following me. I grabbed my spear, boomerang and woomera, and I headed north. I climbed up another Sandhill and turned around and had another look and thought, no, there's no one coming. Night falls over the desert. Wallampiri and his family continue moving north. Charlie, Joseph and the rest of the search party start a fire and settle into their camp for the night. Monday evening, very strange, sitting back here tonight, expecting the two men to come into our camp any moment. The men are calling out to them to come to share the water and the wallaroo that was shot this afternoon. There is some fear about and Willie Bennett says that Pinapina was stupid and wrecked everything by being fearful of the two naked men and everyone is sleeping close in fear. At three o'clock that afternoon, we used a car radio to tell Kintor and Kiwakura that I was onto them. I'd seen the smoke from their fires. Then I've been head north cross country and I camped at a place about halfway, which was on the west side of that lake. Road there, not no not no road. Cross right through. One night, At first light, I saw a smoke in the distance and thought, that's where they're lighting a fire. Then I found that fire and saw they'd slept there too. From the footprints I saw, I knew they'd left to go hunting. I saw Wallenperry Spears. So I knew he'd return. The fear now is not so aggressive as they're not considered as Kodaicha anymore. But the fear comes from realising that the two men were frightened away and may think that we are out to do them harm. 
Tomorrow we will find the two men's tracks and maybe tonight the last of the ancient people spend their last night free of the modern world. However, I'm quite prepared to turn back and won't feel in any way daunted if they stay out here as they are. Moving barefoot on sand as hot as fire and still having to stop to look for water and food, the family managed to stay a safe distance ahead. The search party, in contrast, had an abundance of resources, four-wheel drives, food, bottled water, matches, blankets and more. Yet even with the advantage of modern world luxuries, they were still lagging behind. I told my family I had seen a motor car. I asked them to go up on the sand hill and have a look for themselves. Then I went out hunting and I saw that car again. I saw someone who I now know to be Joseph. I told my family to stay and hide while I returned for my spears. Tuesday morning, Willie finds discarded boomerang. By midday, after crossing about 10 dunes, the two men's tracks are headed north and they are trying to obscure their tracks but the blokes find their tracks easy to follow still and they're pretty certain that both the men are Japaljari brothers of George or Joseph. The next morning we kept moving. I left my two baby pet dingoes on that sand hill with their mother. I had to leave them behind. We took off and I caught a goanna on the way. Then I saw two men, one standing on a hill, one standing next to a tree. I saw my older brother, Joseph. Charlie had to return to Kiwikara to take care of community business, such as food deliveries and mail drops. Joseph, Freddie West and the search party continued. They were beginning to make ground on the family. I heard that car start and it started chasing after me. Then I ran east. I saw Joseph chasing the others north. He grabbed them and put them in the car. I took off in the other direction. I ran right around and started tracking Prince. What Prince was I tracking? I was tracking the car. Amidst all the panic, Yakulchi, a young teenager at the time, remembers exactly the moment the search party caught her. <laughs> We had made a fire and it went out. We kept trying and finally we got a fire going. We kept walking, worried the men would follow us. We became hungry and started hunting for goanna. 
I sat down and Takaria was digging. I saw the two men walking and told Takaria to get up and keep walking, but the men had blocked us off from our camp. We started running towards our mothers. They saw us coming and asked, What's wrong? Why are you running? Look behind. There are two Pintaby men in a car coming towards us. The four of us started running towards a sand dune. We decided to hide Takari's mother. Then a turkey flew out. We were watching the turkey fly over and the car pulled up closer. We had nowhere to go. My mother hid in the spinifex. The men grabbed us and put us in the car, leaving Takaria's mother behind. They didn't see her in the bushes. Then the men took off their shirts and gave it to us to wear. The men grabbed us by the arm and told us to sit down. They gave us matches and we began striking them. We would have a fire, but then it would disappear. By this stage, my mother had taken off from behind the bushes. They couldn't see her, and she spent the night in the bush by herself. In the morning, she was frightened and came to get me in Takaria, but the men saw her coming and said to her, you've got to come back with us to Kiwakara. My brother and I were on the sand hill, watching the others getting grabbed by Joseph. I picked them up and I'd been put them in that motor car and they were scared. The old lady, she was hiding under the spinifex. Then I ran Marahook and told him to go bring food and water. And I kept them. The women were grabbed and they were terrified. Joseph and the other men with him tried to reassure them that they were family and that they were safe. Nervous and overwhelmed, Yalti, Yakulchi's sister, recalls her first experience of being in a car. <laughs> We were frightened and we covered our faces. As the car kept moving, we looked up, the trees and the spinifex were moving around. When the car stopped, I jumped off, all frightened and dizzy, my head moving. It was the first time I'd been in a car. I didn't know what was happening. Wallampiri was the leader of the Pintapi Nine and a man of strength and determination. He was not about to concede easily. He was watching what was going on between the search party and the woman. Armed with a spear, he was prepared to defend his family. As we approached each other, I threw a spear at one of the men, but just missed. As Wallampiri took aim, my mother yelled out, Stop that! That's your brother! 
your mate. Leave him. That's your brother. The fear and tension lessens when Joseph and Freddie West explain who they are. Wallumpiri can see that the men are not hurting the women and he slowly begins to identify the family who are standing in front of him. When we met them, they said, it's okay, come here. So we did. Finally, the old lady came to. Then we were all together. Radio message, the Savo says they found the two men with seven others, women and children, and they require more fuel, vehicles, and they want to bring them in. Over radio telephone, I asked that they tell the bush people, inverted commas, that they can stay out there if they want to. And after 20 minutes' discussion, I get a, a return call from Bill Nolan Japanati saying they want to come in. Anyway, Freddie and the Kiwikura mob seem very keen to bring them in. I told Marahook to bring us food. I looked after them, poor things. And we camped together and we ate together that night, northeast of Kirakura. Via car radio, Joseph instructs Charlie to travel back out to meet the group and to bring with him water, blankets and food supplies. Friday. They seem to be very nervous but in very good health. They, the two men, had run the 80 kilometres over two days and they seem in no way tired. Say they eat lots of cats. I tasted the sugar. We didn't know what it was, but it was so sweet. I tasted the sugar and it tasted so sweet like the cooling, cooling flower. My mother tasted it and it was so sweet. It was good. <laughs> Marahuka bought the sugar and water. He also gave us some blankets. This is when I first met a white fella. I thought this bloke is white. This one. He is a white, this bloke. Uh, we were sitting when I saw this white fella. He was white. Tasting sugar for the first time impacted the Pintipi Nine greatly. It was the first sign of how much there was to soon discover. Wallumpiri had a choice to make. If he decided to take his family into Kiwikara community, life as they had always known it would change forever. He had no idea what to expect from community life. They would no longer need to walk from sunrise to sunset looking for water and for food. They would gain access to both whitefella medicine 
but also whitefella disease. The moment the family met a whitefella, the history of Pintapi culture had taken a turn that would change the course of the culture forever. This was the moment when the last remaining group of Aboriginal people make contact with the outside world. My brother Joseph, Freddie West and I were talking. We're taking you with us, they said. We're going to take you home where there is more food and water. I was listening and I thought about it for a while and then said, yes, take us. We've been sitting out here with no one else around. Unlike other documented experiences of bush mob moving into settlements, Wallampiri says it was his decision to go with the group into community life. They knew they would not be able to survive much longer, even with their kinship system, with just nine of them left. <laughs> And we all went back. We got ready and kept going. We climbed into the car. They gave us blankets. Halfway we slept and drank cups of tea. They gave us apple, orange and all. Cool drink and all. Maruk gave us all this. Saturday. Drove about 85 kilometres today and am exhausted after crossing 71 sand ridges. The Bush families handled it very well though. Billy Ward led the way. Freddie has taken one of the women as his fourth wife and everyone is amazed by how quick he was. The family arrived safely at Kiwikara and was reunited with their relatives. It was a happy time for the nine However, there is no doubt they experienced an enormous culture shock. Their recollection of this time is nostalgic and accompanied by healthy doses of humour. The three sisters, Yalti, Yakulchi and Takaria, clearly enjoy the chance to reminisce. <laughs> When we arrived at Kirikara camp, my family was sitting down together. We were all sitting down, and then I saw Wallala by himself on the sand dune. I got up and called over to him. I could see he was eating sugar. He come over and said, Lovely, sweet one. I've been hungry. That's why I'm eating the sugar. The staff at Kirikara called up and ordered more food. When the truck pulled up, the driver and doctor jumped out and started crying. It was the first time they had seen us. We had no clothes on and we were sitting all together. We told everyone that we wanted to return to the bush. But all our family says, no, you have to stay here in Kirikara. There are a lot of families in Kirikara. Mm. 
White man at Kirikara gave us blankets and we would throw them away. We wanted to sleep on the ground. We'd always slept on the ground with no blankets. They kept giving us blankets and we kept throwing them away. We liked sleeping on the ground. One night at the camp, while everyone was sleeping, we got up and went to Jewelry for water. It was dry and there was no water. We would go to the store and take flour, tin meat and sugar. We walked out and didn't pay. We didn't know. Our families would give us money and we would dig a hole and bury it. We didn't know what to do with it. We were bush people. We would eat mungipa. We didn't know about flour and sugar and tin meat or watermelons and oranges. I cooked a potato in the campfire and it tasted good. I put an orange on the fire and it got burnt, burnt, burnt. We like to eat sugar. It tastes good. When we tasted the sugar for the first time, it tasted like the sap on the leaves. When we were living in the bush, we used to suck the sap off the leaves. The first time I tasted tea, I spat it out. I didn't like it. But I would eat handfuls of sugar. <laughs> Once my family went to the store and I was at home by myself. I took my sister's billy can and filled it with water and then added detergent and tea leaves. I mixed everything together and bubbles began to appear. I had a sip and it started to burn my throat. My family came back and saw me with the soap in my mouth. I became really sick and the sister gave me some medicine. Monday, five days after the search started, a week after the search started, I mean, Journo's photographer arrived from, from Melbourne Herald. When approval had been given for the photojournalist and photographer to come via radio telephone, DAA had advised us they were departmental people. Denise, the journalist, and Peter, the photographer, have a field day while Jeff self work on the water tank and pipeline. Thursday, considerable strife between Central Land Council, Department of Aboriginal Affairs, over Holdings approval of the Herald photographer and journalist and the action of publishing photos against a statement. Telegram sent to Clive Holding asking Minister to come to Kiwikura 
so that the health needs of the people can be discussed and assistance delivered. Telegrams and radio telephones from news media not possible and we decided to block all communications. Central Land Council plane arrived with Warren Snowden meeting at the big tree near Freddie's camp with everyone here, Bush, Bush family included. Decisions made are no more journalist photos, refer all inquiries of media to Central Land Council, no need for specialist doctor and sisters as suggested by Clyde Holding and airstrip to be closed by barriers. So keep the world out. In the last recording with the Pintapi 9, Wallumpiri is sitting down at Lake Mackay, surrounded by his family. With microphone in hand, he reflects on his decision to leave the bush for the life he has now. Driving in the car to Kurikuri, the trees were going really, really fast, so we ducked our heads. It was scary. I don't know why these trees were moving so fast. As we came into Karakara, I saw my nephew and niece and all the people in the community started crying when they saw us because they knew we were family. They looked after us and kept us and they taught us. I got used to them. We would sleep together, and over time, I felt that I was with my family together in Kirakura community, and we were the same. I was happy to be with them now. The Pintipi are some of the toughest and most skilled survivors on the planet. And by passing down their survival skills through each succeeding generation, they've managed to occupy their part of the world uninterrupted for tens of thousands of years, until only 30 years ago. This story is different to many other stories of Aboriginal first contact. As this story resulted in a mostly peaceful reunion and introduction into the Western world. Wallumpiri, Takaria, Yalti, Yakulchi and Joseph still live between Kiwikara and Kintor communities. Wallala and Thomas are both living in Alice Springs. All six of the family members who shared their stories for this documentary have painted, some of whom have become very successful and well-known artists with exhibitions in international galleries. Pintipi is still the family's first language, and very little English is spoken, if at all. Adjusting to community life was not uniformly easy for all. One brother, 
who is not mentioned by the family, returned to the bush soon after he came into Kiwikara. There are a number of stories about this brother, that he is living in a community in Queensland somewhere, or that he has been spotted in Alice Springs, using a new name. Charlie has his own thoughts on why this brother turned back. Uh, it wasn't long that he, he... He was in there for about, I think, two months. But even sometimes when he was there, he was going off by himself already. You know, he was getting away from the place. And it's like I said, I think they were such a harmonious mob, like they exhibited zero scars from fighting and stuff that I, I think he couldn't handle human conflict. And the, the, the sort of strife that was happening between families, between individuals, commonplace at, at uh, Kiwikura. And he, that's why he went, he just couldn't handle the stress of it went back. I heard stories that he'd gone into the sky, kind of um, mythological kind of things. Community life has exposed the family to a life that is, in some ways, easier than what they'd previously known. They're able to easily access food and water, housing, education and medical treatment but it also exposed them to nastier elements of the modern world, such as white fella diseases and alcohol and substance abuse, which has had an impact on each of the family members in one way or another. The Pintipi Nine family are prominent members of their communities, and each has their own individual story of the last 30 years, some of which are happy and some of which are not. However, each of the six members who shared their story did so with open arms and with a smile as they remembered their time in the bush. The documentary Pintipi 9, produced by NG Media. Executive producers were Sophia Desai and Alana Mani. NG Media is an Indigenous-governed media organisation based in the Gibson Desert, Australia.